and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Dr. Mason Marks, Assistant Professor of Law at Gonzaga University School of Law and Fellow in the Ethics of Biomedical and Technological Innovation at the Edmund J. Safra Petrie Flom Center at Harvard University, and Dustin Marlin, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Massachusetts School of Law, Dartmouth. We will discuss their respective scholarship on the regulation of psychedelic drugs. So welcome to the show. Uh, welcome back to the show, uh, Mason and uh, Dustin. Thanks a lot, Brian. It's great to be with you again. Thanks so much, Brian. In, in beginning this conversation, I was hoping that the two of you could each say a little something about the work that you've been doing recently in the field of the law and regulation of psychedelic substances. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, so right now is a really interesting time to be following psychedelics law and policy because there's a lot of activity there, um, in the past year and a half, we've had four cities that have decriminalized psychedelics of various types. And in November, there are uh, a couple ballot measures that will be voted on in Oregon and Washington, D.C. So it's a really timely topic to be uh, talking about. And I have an article that's forthcoming in the Administrative Law Review. It should come out in December called Controlled Substance Regulation for the COVID-19 Mental Health Crisis. And the idea behind this piece is that even before anyone had ever heard of COVID-19, the country was experiencing numerous intersecting public health crises. So there was uh, rising rates of depression for the past two decades or so, rising rates of drug overdose deaths, and rising rates of suicide. And all of these trends have been worsened by the pandemic. And the problem is that we don't have the tools to address these problems. The tools of modern psychiatry, even though they have advanced significantly in the past 50 to 100 years, are still relatively primitive compared to other areas of medicine. And that's no fault of the people who are working very hard in psychiatry and psychology. It's just that we lack a true understanding of the biological basis of uh, mental illness. And it's very risky, expensive, and difficult to develop new drugs in that area. And pharmaceutical companies have incentives to not go after that big moonshot, that truly innovative drug that will really change the landscape. They're often incentivized to just make small, subtle differences to existing drugs, which is why we have over a dozen selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Paxil and Prozac, which really are not all that different from one another. And they're ineffective in about 50% of people who try them, even people who try several SSRIs in series, often have um, inadequate relief from their symptoms. So that's the motivation for the article. And I look at ways that psilocybin and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which is currently an FDA-sanctioned clinical trials but won't be approved for, for several years, probably at least three years or so, uh, I talk about ways that we could potentially make those treatments available uh, sooner to address this COVID-19 mental health crisis. So I uh, 
discuss uh, the decriminalization of psychedelic um, substances. And we've seen, as Mason noted, in, in cities like Oakland and Santa Cruz and Denver um, and now Ann Arbor, um, we see an organization um, mostly under the umbrella of decriminalized nature uh, now spearheading decriminalization campaigns of natural psychedelics, uh, for example, psilocybin mushrooms. And they're organizing now in, in over 100 cities um, across the United States. And their mission is to end the war on um, what they call entheogenic um, plants and fungi, which is a, a simile, a synonym rather for uh, psychedelic and, and to support the unalienable human right to develop our own relationship with nature. And so the movement isn't seeking to legalize psychedelics, but rather to make enforcement of their prohibition uh, the law's lowest priority through either um, local ballot initiatives or city council votes. Um, and so the decriminalized nature campaign is sort of serving as a grassroots alternative, in a sense, to a commercialized push for the medical use of psychedelics. Um, and, and so it goes beyond, in, in some sense, the seeking of limited therapeutic exemptions to federal prohibition by creating this decriminalization um, campaign. And, and I argue in, in an article um, that was published in the Lewis and Clark Law Review last year um, called Beyond Cannabis, um, Psychedelic Decriminalization and Social Justice, uh, that social justice and particularly uh, the concept of neurodiversity, um, that is the belief that cognitive differences should be embraced as normal and natural human variations, uh, provides a fundamental argument in favor of decriminalizing psychedelics. So when we talk about psychedelics, what are we talking about? Are they all more or less versions of the same thing? Or are there significant differences between different drugs or substances we might put in that category? Sort of how do they work to the extent we know? and Do they all work in the same way? So when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about a really broad category of drugs, um, and they come from all over the world. There are both naturally occurring psychedelics that grow in fungi, like uh, about 150 different species of mushrooms that grow throughout the world. There are also plants like ayahuasca that grow in the um, uh, Amazon uh, jungle. Actually, those are two different plants that are mixed together. And um, there's a plant called ib ib iboga uh, from West Africa. So they come from all over the world. Uh, they're also synthetically uh, made psychedelics like LSD and more recently ketamine. And so they come from um, different places. They have different chemical structures. But what they share is their ability to change the way that people think. So they change people's perceptions and cognition. And that's um, what kind of brings them together in a single class. Most of the psychedelics also act upon uh, uh, serotonin, 
receptors in the brain. So to some extent, they share that characteristic with the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor uh, class of drugs. Um, but beyond that, we don't really understand a lot about them. And that's that's actually true of most drugs for mental health conditions as well. We can talk about um, how they bind to receptors in the brain. We can talk about how they might affect the metabolic activity in certain brain regions, which you would see um, on a functional MRI where areas where there's a lot of metabolic activity might glow brighter on the image. But we don't really understand why they have the effects that they do. And one of the leading hypotheses is that they inhibit activity in a, a brain system uh, called the default mode network, which is a, a network of several different brain uh, structures. And that system is believed to be active when people are reflecting upon themselves uh, during, during activities of self-reflection. And it's thought to be disengaged when you are engaged in an activity that requires focused attention. And uh, a disruption or, or, or that area of the brain, the DMN, that default mode network is thought to be uh, perhaps overactive or um, to be behaving in some um, slightly unusual way in people with certain mental health conditions. So it's thought that disrupting that network with psychedelics might be responsible for the alleviation of symptoms that many people feel when they take these drugs. How are psychedelics used medically? Are different psychedelics used for different medical or potentially used for different medical purposes? And do they have non-medical uses as well? I, I So I'll talk about the medical uses and then um, uh, perhaps Dustin can comment on the non-medical applications. Uh, the psychedelic that's currently FDA approved and used very widely for a variety of purposes is called ketamine. And it's an anesthetic that is on the uh, World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. So it's very important. It's often used in battlefield medicine uh, where it might be difficult to carry a lot of equipment uh, to treat pain in people who have been injured. It can be administered very easily nasally. It's also given to children routinely, um, and it's thought to be quite safe. It's used every day in hospitals around the world. But recently it was discovered that ketamine also has an antidepressant effect. And so we've seen these ketamine therapy clinics cropping up around the country. And what's so interesting about this and about other psychedelics for use in mental health treatments is they often have effects almost instantaneously. So people often report that they've been experiencing symptoms of severe treatment-resistant depression for months or years, and they have a single infusion of ketamine. It's usually given um, through an IV or nasally. It's, it can be inhaled uh, through a little uh, spray bottle, or sometimes it's an injection is given intramuscularly. And people 
often report very significant results after only a single administration or sometimes uh, three administrations spaced out by a few days. So that's FDA approved um, for use in anesthesia and people can use it often anesthesiologists or psychiatrists use it off label um, for treating depression. But um, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is owned by Johnson & Johnson, recently patented a related chemical called esketamine, uh, and they are marketing that under a trade name Spravato for treating um, depression. It's kind of controversial because they've taken a, 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 a drug like ketamine that's generic and widely available, and suddenly they've patented this closely related chemical. It's a mirror image and are charging a much higher price for it. And a lot of people are concerned that similar trend uh, will develop with other psychedelics like psilocybin and MDMA that companies will swoop in and try to patent various formulations of these drugs and various means of administering them and charge whatever price they choose which affects access to the therapies. But to, to answer your question, there are several different types of psychedelics. They're all used for slightly different indications. Um, ketamine and psilocybin appear to be the most promising for depression, and uh, MDMA appears to be very effective in treating uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, oftentimes, these drugs are not given to people to take home and use, those uh, ketamine sometimes is. Instead, the way they're administered is they're given to a person under professional supervision. So a doctor or some other healthcare professional would sit with the person for the duration of the treatment, which in the case of psilocybin or MDMA could be six or eight hours. So there, there are also studies that find um, that, that psychedelics, and I concentrate mostly on what are called the classic psychedelics, um, the psilocybin, LSD, DMT, ayahuasca, and, and mescaline. And a lot of the research um, finds that uh, th these substances benefit um, those who um, might have a... Uh, mental illness, but also might be um, healthy individuals as well um, through this concept of ego dissolution. Um, and, and this is the um, sort of radical shift in, in one's perspective that can be induced by um, taking these, these drugs that this in, in a subjective sense, um, one's ego is, is seen as separate from um, their uh, uh, self-image or, or self-identity or, or one's ego is, is rather um, one separate sense of self-image or self-identity. And so ego dissolution is, is a loss. Um, it could be permanent or it might be temporary um, of this separate sense of the self. Um, so you have this sort of shift from perhaps a self-centered to a more unbiased um, perspective, perhaps the dying of the sense of self or individuality. Um, and so you conceive of yourself um, more as uh, sort of being 
interconnected with with others or or with the the environment that so no longer seeing seeing yourself as an individual isolated from um life as as it takes place around you but this interconnectedness with the universe and and its inhabitants is something that um people who who take these substances often report that there are these sometimes intense feelings of euphoria and unity um, and, and love with the self sort of being temporarily uh, forgotten. Uh, so uh, th- this, this experience and they're finding that it, it sort of parallels um, also the, the effects of um, meditation if, if taken seriously. How are psychedelics currently regulated and how does government regulation affect research into and use of psychedelics uh, in a clinical setting? So nearly all the psychedelics are categorized by Drug Enforcement Administration as Schedule One controlled substances. And that means that according to the DEA and the FDA, these substances have no currently accepted medical uses and a high potential for abuse. Um, so most of these drugs are in Schedule One. That includes psilocybin, MDMA, ibogaine, dimethyltryptamine. The only exception is ketamine, which is uh, actively used, like I said, in a lot of uh, medical contexts. And so one of the things I explore in my paper, and Dustin can comment on this as well, but um, if we look at the origins of this controlled substance scheduling system, it goes back to the 1970s. And um, historically, it's rooted in a lot of misinformation and racial animus. And one of the things I talk about is how drugs that tend to be put into this category, Schedule 1, can be placed there based on very, very little evidence. So that could be anecdotal evidence like case reports where a person is reported to have taken the drug and had adverse reaction. Uh, so it's very easy to place a drug in Schedule 1, and that is done by the U.S. Attorney General. But if you want to take a drug out of Schedule 1, it's extremely difficult. You need very, very, very strong evidence uh, such as phase two or phase three clinical trials sanctioned by the FDA. So there's this asymmetry of information. And um, so for that reason, I call Schedule One a regulatory black hole, because once a substance is banished to that category, it almost never comes out. And um, there's a set of factors that the DEA and the FDA are supposed to consider when they're deciding whether to schedule a drug. And they're all framed in a very negative light. So they sort of presuppose that a substance is harmful and they don't consider the potential positive effects of the drug on society of keeping it available to members of the public and the negative consequences of removing that substance from the marketplace. For example, there's a substance called ketamine. Uh, no, sorry. There's a, it's called um, kratom uh, that many people report uh, is helpful for treating uh, opioid use disorders or chronic pain. Uh, and that drug is currently legal. It's not a psychedelic. 
but it has certain um, uh, analgesic uh, properties. And uh, the DEA and the FDA have been campaigning for several years to put that drug in Schedule One, and they never consider what the negative implications of that might be. Uh, likely, if that drug was suddenly made illegal, these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people using it might be forced to resort to using illicit opioids or benzodiazepines or something um, that could be quite addictive and harmful in its place. And I would just add to, to that that these are substances that have been used by indigenous cultures for thousands of years uh, without um, prohibition. And, and there was this backlash that occurred against psychedelics um, in, in the 1960s, and it's been found to have been motivated by a real uh, animus toward um, the hippie counterculture. Um, it was a politically motivated effort to discredit um, movements like the anti-war movement. It's more recently been found to have been uh, racist and, and culturist and uh, Nixon's top aide, John Ehrlichman, um, it, it admitted in, in an interview that was that was found that um, really this this was uh, something that that had um, racist origins. That the Nixon White House had um, two enemies. Um, Ehrlichman was quoted as saying, "The anti-war left and black people," and that. Um, he said, we, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. So psychedelic prohibition is really grounded in this legacy of racism and the repression of indigenous cultures. And, and this continues today with uh, draconian drug sentences associated with uh, Schedule One substances, and and those who are are punished are um, often branded as criminals. Um, uh, can go to uh, jail for extended periods of time, and those that are, are punished are more likely to be um, young, non-white, and socioeconomically marginalized than than most people um, who, who use psychedelics and, and aren't subject to, to those penalties. Well, it does seem like there's almost a catch 22 of saying that schedule one drugs have no like currently accepted medical uses in part because no one's allowed to get them or use them or test them for anything. Uh, are there things that could potentially be done at the federal or state level to increase access to psychedelics both for um both for research and for therapeutic purposes yeah there's a lot that could be done and you've raised a really good point that i think the recent trend towards cannabis legalization really highlights quite well if we look at cannabis it's a substance that is available for uh, recreational use or what many people call adult use but it's also available for medical use, and um, it's available in over half the U.S. states, and there are thousands of physicians and other healthcare professionals who recommend it to their patients. So it really no longer makes sense 
at all to claim that it has no accepted medical use, but that is still the position of the FDA and the DEA. And because of that, it can be extremely difficult to conduct research on marijuana for a variety of reasons. Um, for perhaps first and foremost, the fact that it is highly stigmatized. So if you're a researcher that wants to use the drug for research, uh, there could be negative repercussions of that professionally and to your reputation. Also, um, researchers are required to use cannabis that's grown on a, a federally run farm uh, on the campus of the University of Mississippi, which is kind of a weird uh, idiosyncrasy of cannabis regulation. These restrictions also apply to psychedelics, and the DEA actually limits the number of grams of each substance that can be produced each year. So for 2020, only a total of 30 grams of psilocybin can be produced in total, and only 50 grams of MDMA can be produced. And that's a really, really small amount. It's only a few hundred doses, so perhaps only enough to conduct a few small clinical trials. So there are a few different ways to make it easier for researchers to study. One way would be to lift those quotas and make it easier for researchers to get licenses to study Schedule One drugs, which would also decrease the stigma associated with studying them. Of course, a better approach would just be to reschedule these drugs, either uh, drop them down to a less restricted schedule, like Schedule 4 or 5, or to deschedule them altogether. So, I mean, from what both of you have said earlier, it sounds like some jurisdictions, I took it to be some cities, and potentially in the future, some states are acting independently to decriminalize uh, psychedelics and, and at least potentially make them more, more available. Do, do you see this trend increasing? And why is it so difficult to deschedule them if it seems that they have the potential to be so beneficial in relation to, convic- to mental health conditions that so many people are suffering from? So we we have seen um, in, in the past couple of years um, decriminalization and, and organization in, in the realm of um, the sort of these uh, natural um, psychedelics, and, and I think there is an appetite for it in um, different parts of the country, um, and particularly the more um, liberal. Um, areas. I mean, Oregon, for example, is is going to be um, the first, um, you know, following uh, Denver and Santa Cruz and Oakland and and Ann Arbor to actually um, sort of come up with a a real licensing regime um, that that isn't. Uh, it, it goes beyond decriminalization, although they do have a vote um, in November to decriminalize all drugs as well, which might dovetail nicely with this, but this is a real medical legalization uh, model. And, and so uh, it allows for sort of this, this regulatory model for therapeutic uses. So users would be allowed to legally use psilocybin mushrooms 
in the context of licensed uh, service centers. Um, and, and so this is in that way, it's broader than decriminalization, but, but it can also be seen as narrower in some sense because it only applies to therapeutic uses or, or mainly to therapeutic uses. Um, and it can be seen also to sort of restrict decisions about freedom of use to the medical system, and in this case, the Oregon Health Authority. Um, and so absent a parallel decriminalization of the substances, um, you might still find that those who use uh, psilocybin outside of, of these treatment centers would be uh, subject to criminal criminal penalties. But I, I do think that this is a um, step in, in the right direction, although I would wonder things like how widely available will the services be to those who want to access them? Um, what mental health conditions qualify for a prescription to such services? Uh, what's the price of these uh, sessions going to be? Uh, will this prevent all but the privileged and the wealthy from obtaining treatment? Is this going to be covered by a typical insurance plan? Uh, how will the therapy be conducted? Um, um, if somebody believes they need uh, a drug like psilocybin, is it fair for someone else to decide that based on their diagnosis rather than um, the the patient's own uh, feelings regarding their uh, their their need for um, the substance? So uh, Dustin raised some really great points, and it it, it really illustrates how different cities and states are taking different approaches to regulating these substances, but they all acknowledge that they have utility for addressing mental health conditions and perhaps even more broadly just for uh, enhancing people's sense of well-being or perhaps their their sense of spiritual well-being and, and potential. And it's really interesting to look at the different approaches they're taking. So Denver is what Denver was the first city to take action last year to decriminalize psilocybin. And what that means is that the city won't spend any money, time, or other resources on arresting or prosecuting people for personal use. Then Oakland and Santa Cruz followed suit. Um, but in addition to decriminalizing psilocybin, they're decriminalizing many naturally occurring psychedelics. And uh, most recently, uh, just a couple weeks ago, Ann Arbor, Michigan did the same. And then um, the DC initiative, Initiative 81, is taking even a, another approach. They're specifically decriminalizing three substances, psilocybin, DMT, and ibogaine. And I believe they are actually decriminalizing distribution in addition to, to just possession, which is different from, from, from some of the other cities. And then, of course, um, uh, Oregon's measure 109 that Dustin measured is very different. It would truly be a historic uh, regulated system for the manufacturing, distribution, and supervised administration of psilocybin. And unlike the decriminalization measures, which can take effect immediately, the Oregon measure would trigger a two-year planning phase where um, a committee appointed by the governor would have to sit down and really hash out the nuts and bolts of what this program would look like. 
So in, in closing, I wonder if each of you could talk a little bit about what you hope to see in the regulation and study of psychedelics going forward. In other words, you talked about a lot of changes that are currently being contemplated. In your kind of ideal situation, are there additional moves that you think that jurisdictions should make, whether at the federal, state, or local level? And are there particular moves that you think are especially valuable and important? Yeah, um, you you had asked why it's so difficult to reschedule these substances, and one of the reasons is that the the body and the official um, that are responsible for scheduling is the Drug Enforcement Administration and the U.S. Attorney General. So these are the nation's top law enforcement officials, and they're in charge of what is really a public health issue. And so that's something that we should change, particularly now when there's a lot of attention focused on potential reforms to law enforcement. And the war on drugs really ties in with that and the abuse of uh, certain marginalized communities. So I'd like to see control of drug policy shifted away from law enforcement agencies to more public health oriented agencies. And um, I just want to mention that uh, Dustin and I have a couple events coming up where we'll be discussing these issues in greater depth. And the first is at Gonzaga University School of Law on October 12th. And um, that's called Controlled Substance Regulation 2020. And we'll also feature Alex Kreit and Jennifer Oliva. And then on October 28th, Dustin and I uh, have a panel at Harvard Law School uh, that's called Can Psychedelics Help Save America? And we'll be talking about um, some much broader issues like the role psychedelics might play in sort of helping to heal the nation because we're in kind of a uh, political crisis right now where there's intense political polarization. And um, uh, as Dun- Dustin mentioned, there's a lot of evidence that psychedelics might help people feel more connected to the world around them and the people in it. So Perhaps they could even help people be more um, conscious of um, things like climate change and more empathetic towards people who have different views. So that's a really exciting panel, and that will also have um, uh, Ifatayo Harvey and Patricia Zettler in addition to uh, Dustin and myself. I would just add that I I think that it is ridiculous that – these things are entirely prohibited. They're certainly not without their psychological dangers, but at at the same time, I I think that the, uh, I I don't have a whole lot of faith in the federal government right now to uh, reschedule or or deschedule these. So I think it's going to uh, be up to the states and and the municipalities. And, And I think that What's going on in Oregon um, with the psilocybin um, inpatient therapy is is a step in the the right direction. Um, I, I think also decriminalization at, at the state and local levels as as it's going is 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 also a um, a, a good step. Um, but I I really think that um, we, we need to see additional um, alleviation of of this stigma that. Uh, psychedelics um, need to be reconceptualized from drugged, delusional 
um, criminal has has been the case um, since the the beginning of the war on drugs to this natural and valuable um, form of creative potential. And and I think um, efforts at decriminalization and I think efforts at um, um, legalization in in a regulated capacity um, are are both steps in, in the right direction here. Well, Mason, Dustin, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your fascinating and timely scholarship in this area. Uh, And I will be sure to put links to the events you mentioned in the liner notes for the show. So listeners who want to learn more can can check them out. Thanks so much, Brian. It's always a pleasure and uh, love your work. Thanks again, Brian.
Everything in moderation 